Welcome to the Frame of Reference podcast. Today's topic is one that's been hotly debated amongst friends, families, online strangers, passers-by, in coffee shops, in schools, in universities, social media, and the list goes on. It is indeed housing. Why has housing become such a complicated and controversial topic? Well, it might have to do with the fact that the G7 and Western nations are all facing record inflation, a lack of housing supply, and a cost of living crisis across the board. Canada is no different. It has the highest housing debt to income ratio in the G20, and the market continues to pop off with record immigration numbers and bad zoning policies. Despite the amount of resources and land available, this continues to to grow and become a top concern amongst all Canadians. However, we discuss the valuation of land, talking about a land value tax, which can in theory help reduce short-term costs of housing and the bloated speculation around it. Floyd Marinescu is my guest. He is the CEO and co-founder of C4 Media. He's active in the tech community as an angel investor and limited partner in several VC funds. He's also the founder of UBI Works, a basic income advocacy group of over 100,000 supporters of UBI across Canada. In 2018, Floyd organized 120 Canadian CEOs to sign a letter endorsing basic income in Canada. This is a great discussion filled with amazing nuggets of knowledge regarding the moralities behind housing, income, and how a democratic society with crippling infrastructure can be more focused on growth without making things like immigration the boogeyman, something that I've been seeing online a lot. This was one of the more nuanced discussions in which I learned a lot just talking from Floyd, and I'm sure discussing this matter with solutions in mind will help us get to where we eventually want to be. So enjoy this discussion. Hi, Floyd. How is it going? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thanks, Ashish. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the, the most actually important topics, I'd say, in Canada or in also North America, if you sort of look at the overarching um, housing crisis overall happening, uh, is, you know, affordability. And you have some really interesting uh, takes on it. You, you're the founder of Commonwealth.ca. Um, and you're also on ubiworks.ca, a basic home um, income advocacy. Um, tell us more about how, what got you into this space. You know, how did you get involved in this? And, um, you know, how did you, what, what do you think, you know, the future is like when it comes to UBI? Because uh, it's such an interesting topic. Yeah. So, um, so I run a software developer education company. We do event learning events for engineers. Uh, I've been doing that for like over 15 years. My own background is in software development. So, you know, with my sort of view of technology and, and of business overall, I'm kind of a systems thinker. And um, yeah, when I first heard about UBI, I, I mean, I didn't even, didn't even conceive that this could be possible, that you could have a free market system where there's a floor for everyone, uh, where, um, uh, yeah, where even left-wing and right-wing economists historically have been for it. That was very exciting to me. I'm like, why don't we already have it? In fact, you know, it was almost voted into Congress in the uh, late 1960s in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, so I, 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 as my business matured and I was able to free up some time 
uh, I started uh, wanting to do to give something back and thinking about what some of the problems the world has and basic income was seems like a, a key multiplier that if we had this it would uh, make everything else um, a little easier to every other problem a little, a little easier to solve it's not just about poverty it's about helping people in times of transition uh, it's about students and mothers and entrepreneurs having a floor uh, people not being afraid to fail so I I did that worked on promoting basic income in Canada for over four years. And in the course of that time, learned a lot about um, economics and history and about uh, what's what are the drivers of poverty and came to understand that um, uh, the role of housing plays in all of this. And it, housing is almost at the, at, the, at the core of everything in terms of uh, driving poverty and, and rising costs of living. You know, people think of inflation, but but you know the number one expense in anyone's uh, monthly account is, is, is their mortgage or their rent payments. Uh, so if we want to lower the cost of living, it has to start there. And, you know, the more expensive housing gets, the, uh, you know, the, the more we create poverty. We, we end up like homes end up being dis people being displaced from homes um, and just can't afford to live. So um, so the new project Commonwealth is looking at how to um, is it looking. One of the projects is addressing this issue of housing affordability uh, by looking at, at the role that we have, the relationship we have to land. Uh, and I think that, and I can wanted to make the case to your audience and to yourself that um, a land value tax, a shifting of our tax base off of income tax onto land tax is actually, is needed uh, a key pillar in bringing back housing affordability and fixing the way the, the market works. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and um, going back to that land value tax um, argument, you yeah. saying, you're, you're saying that that can lower the cost of housing by up to 40%. Is that correct? Yeah. So here's how it works. I mean, first of all, looking, let's look at the housing issue more broadly. No one's actually saying we got to lower prices, mm. right? Politicians are just covering their ass. Yeah. You know, we actually have to lower prices. And experts who have looked at, at current solutions on the table say, yeah, this won't actually lower prices. It might slow their rise. But how many decades would it take for incomes to catch up uh, so that houses actually are affordable again? Uh, it would take forever. Um, you know, research has even shown that increasing supply uh, may have a have has marginal effects on reducing price. So we actually need to look at reducing price um, because it's already too expensive. And the best way to accomplish that is to make homes uh, less attractive as investments. So homes are for living, not not as a wealth creation vehicle. So if we can create, if we can, if we can make that true, then the speculation incentive, the the the, the factors that are driving up bidding behavior making prices too high would be addressed and homes would just reflect the real supply and demand need for living as opposed to people's expectations of, of wealth creation through homes. So I would say that the fairest way to do that is for society to reclaim the majority of the land value that it creates. So this is something that most people don't think about is that land value is not created by developers or by, by owners. It's created by society as a whole. Um, so I think it should be, you can make money by building, by renovating, by, by flipping, but simply holding and waiting for prices to go up, this is actually what drains the economy, slows things down, uh, and makes makes life too expensive for everyone. So that's the part that has to be has to be addressed. So how do you do that? Um, if you look at the value of any investment, it's it has a yield. The, the more it makes you, the more valuable it is. You know, like a bond has a yield. Uh, the better the yield, the more expensive the bond. It's the same thing with 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 homes. Homes are land and the building. The, the building depreciates. It doesn't actually appreciate in value over time. It's the land that appreciates. So if we find a way to, to remove the yield of land, then land would be worth could be worth almost zero. 
in in the end and people would just be mainly buying the home itself and and um and and would have the incentive to to build and and to make the home better because that's where the profit would come from so land value tax is how you do that if if instead of paying high income taxes we could have a we could collect much of the yield the rental value of land instead and that would actually bring the value of land down so in the proposal that we put out in commonwealth.ca is that we could raise 194 billion dollars in canada through collecting three quarters of the rental value of land that's equivalent to about 4.2 percent of the current value of a tax on the current value of land um, and that would actually reduce the value of land by 75 percent and and then how much that impacts home prices depends on the region so the average home would be worth 42 percent less if the land part is shrunk but the home part stays stays at full value in vancouver it would be even more uh, per average home might be 60 percent less because land is the majority of the value of homes in Vancouver. So we're not talking about a tax grab here. We're talking about a tax shift. So we're already paying income tax. If we if we take that 194 billion raised by such a land tax and just increase the 0% income tax bracket, it could go all the way up to $88,000, which means no one pays any tax on their first $88,000 of income. That, that would free 91% of Canadians from paying any income tax. Instead, we'd be paying tax for land. And that would actually make land worth less and things would be cheaper. So that's the general formula. And I can talk more about the incentives. And I think that'll really fix the way the market works as well. Yeah, no, I, I all of what you said makes complete sense. That's why I'm thinking, that's why I'm so skeptical about how <laughs> our, our political parties would would look at this. And it's not just Canada. If I go back from a contextual standpoint, we border with um, the US and the way you know, they, they've had mortgage-backed securities, they have 30-year fixed mortgages, and all these trends that trend towards home ownership as a status symbol, right, and commoditization of homes, uh, which I'm glad you touched on, because commoditization of homes, a lot of people don't understand that the land value plays such a massive role in it. Um, and in a place like Canada, where we have so much land, for us to artificially inflate values of homes, uh, zone the way we do and also, you know, not have, I'd say like in a place like Ontario, middle housing, for example, um, you know, something in between um, a, a luxury condo and, you know, uh, a one or two bedroom rental for families, you know, some basic common sense, even building. So what, what a lot of what you're saying is builders need incentives, right? Like developers need incentives. Um, I think going back to the context of, of where Canada is at, I think things like what you're proposing uh, for the land value, it, it makes so much sense, but I think like we're so frazzled by what happens in the US. Like we wanna sort of not emulate exactly what they're doing, but that, that life status, that symbol status of owning like that four bedroom plus garage plus basement, two door garage, you know, having that complete suburban package is something that Canadians have been after for a long time. And that's what gets people upset is like, I'm not able to afford this life. Now with this solution, I think, you know, there's a couple of barriers, not just political. I'm just curious <laughs> from a entrepreneurial standpoint, I'm glad that you're, you're getting uh, CEOs like yourself to talk about it. Or, you know, um, entrepreneurs should talk about it. How do people get involved? Like what do, people citizens do like because I feel like there's that mental barrier that we have as citizens is we don't understand 
the mess that housing has become sometimes, right? Here's a simple solution that you presented, but at the same time, you know, uh, talking about this with our MPPs and all that, it, it just becomes muddled a little bit. You know, how do we get involved? Yeah, well, I mean, we've been, at UBI Works, we've been doing digital activism now for, for several years. Uh, with email MPs and MPPs and petitions. And, you know, I think with, with this particular idea, because it's not really in the public consciousness yet, it's not really uh, being discussed. Um, I think it's really about uh, people building their own, uh, raising awareness amongst amongst ourselves, amongst uh, having a lot of conversations about it, you know, writing into media about it, um, you know, getting showing that there's public interest in this idea uh, so that the political class and the economist class starts to talk about it you know so that's what we're doing like we're we're doing talks like this podcast for instance and we're putting out research on our website to promote it and uh, we'll be organizing petitions soon um but yeah i think uh getting involved um you know within one's party like uh, policy can uh, resolutions around this uh we're just very early on this particular idea it's very early stage like basic income is is known far more than land value tax overall you know so it's um it's really just having conversations about it like will um uh, you know, would as a homeowner, you know, or as a new, like, for, for instance, what, what I'm actually proposing here is that we kind of end the speculation game that mm -hmm. no one really benefits from rising house prices. Yeah. You know, do do first time home buyers agree? Like, if you can afford a home, have that that status symbol, have that that personalized place to make your own and change. Uh, if you can afford it after such a change, but the but the trade off is you won't benefit much from its value going up, you know, do you agree? But you still have your own home and you can still, you know, be, you know, Lord of your own castle of sorts. Um, I think a lot of home buyers would, you know, so they need to know about this idea. Um, do seniors agree? Cause seniors will actually lose the most in this situation. Yeah. Um, do they agree to lose the, the equity in their paid off homes in order for their children and grandchildren? Uh, to be able to afford homes, and some of the many ones I spoke to said they would. You know, they, they've they've had it easy. It's it's much harder for the new generation. Um, so I know I'm not giving you a really solid answer, but you know, advocacy um, uh, is is very long and time consuming process, and uh, so we're really early stage uh, with this idea. So you know, writing an op eds to your paper, talking to your MPs, like you know, joining housing groups, talking about this idea, is uh, is really at the start. I, I completely agree. I think number one, writing and talking about it is is key. Having a discussion about it is key. But and also, like you said, to the people that it affects the most, the homeowners right now, the the seniors, the boomer generations, um, um, even millennials that are getting into homeownership now, because the idea is, you know, our homeownership as not only status homeownership as wealth, homeownership as wealth creation, um, and a retirement plan, pretty much in Canada, right? Because it's supposed to pay for a lot of, um, you know, the, the things that we can't afford sometimes, right? Like, so for example, it, in many parts of the world, the real estate market is a non-productive market and it should be. Uh, that's, I think a lot of people agree that generally speaking, you know, it's not necessarily the most productive asset and we've hedged too much on the real estate market. It's not necessarily producing any good um, out of it. And like you said, it'll take ages for incomes to catch up to the prices. And we're too afraid to lower the price. Even for the next generation, you know, let's say we lose out on a little bit of that, that value of flipping a home. Um, thinking of a home as a home, but not in a, as an investment is, is a perspective shift.
And I think that yeah. requires conversation in the mainstream. That requires conversation um, at the dinner table. It requires, you know, active conversation with people who think, you know, hey, you know, I'm just going to flip homes and that's all I do and, and get in part into the speculation of things, which is, in my opinion and the opinion of many people, not a productive way to to create wealth um ultimately it's basically you know a loophole in the system that people are able to speculate uh, i spent time in singapore my parents are there and um, i lived there for a long time what was interesting there was they have an executive market um, which is just meant for prs and locals and they have subsidized homes uh, two, three bedroom homes that include middle homes that what we call in Canada, the kind of homes you see in Montreal, for example. Um, and you have affordability built in for locals with the idea of speculation for some new luxury condos as well. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's the solution for Canada, but there are solutions overseas that we can take a look at to say, hey, you know, what can be applied here? Um, so I do think, you know, um, context matters for sure yeah absolutely well yeah i mean talking about um uh investment uh, wealth creation there's a lot of ways to create wealth mm -hmm. right like, like this idea that that the home is the primary way i mean if people had more money in their pockets because homes would be cheaper after such a reform um you know anyone can open a wealth simple account and own this yeah. part of a stock index uh, stock, you know, stock indices generally perform better than, than homes and are, are, are a little less volatile. Um, and, uh, it depends many market home markets have performed better and are, and are safer, but, uh, you know, so, and also like the, it's a drain on the economy. Like the, the research has shown that the higher housing prices are, the slower GDP growth is because, um, you know, the, the actual labor share of housing, the actual amount going to working people is a lot less. Much of the money just returns to capital in the housing market. Um, but for most people, this is the number one expense in their lives. And imagine all that working capital, people working hard in their jobs, that money could be going on spending, on vacations, on buying a car, on, on uh, you know, starting a business instead of just going into mortgage payments, which is like basically sucking money out of the system, forcing it down into equity where it's not really spent. It's not really capitalizing new business. Um, you know, if you're capitalizing uh, new construction, you're helping the economy. If you're, if you're buying your pre-existing home, you're not. And it's mainly the banks that benefit. And a bank, many banks will often make double the, the, the actual return cost of the home over the lifetime of the mortgage. Imagine like a, a working person paying a bank a million dollars over the course of their lifetime. The person should keep most of that. So with a land value tax, because the value of land would be reduced by such a huge amount, instead of paying the bank, you're paying tax uh, and, and you're not paying income tax instead. And that money comes back to us through the investments government makes in our neighborhoods and in running the country. And uh, it's, it's like keeping more of our money to help us overall, um, as well as addressing one of the number one drivers of inequality. You know, in, in 20 years, uh, le leading into uh, 2019, I believe it was, renters' net worth increased by an average of $10,000. Wow. And owners' net worth increased by an average of $380,000. Yeah. So this is the number one cause of inequality. It's actually property ownership. It's not the billionaires. You know, billionaires in Canada have about, I think, $300 billion. But there's the value of land in Canada is well over $6 trillion. So, so... It's the housing market that actually divides 
divides. And uh, if we all were, uh, I mean, tenants are already paying land tax. It goes to their landlord. If all of us paid land tax, it would be a big, a big force for bringing fairness and more quality to, to the system where people would create wealth by contributing, uh, by working hard, by 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 innovating. So actually building and flipping, I don't think is, is a negative uh, practice because you'd have to renovate and make, make something better in order to profit from the flip. So you're adding value to society. That that will continue after a land value tax system. Um, but the incentives will be there to stop the NIMBYs. So like right now, there's so much underdeveloped land um, housing around transit corridors and like around the core downtown areas. All those areas would be too expensive around core downtown areas to have uh, low rise homes. Uh, land value tax would kind of push the market to, to develop high rises in the city centers, which would which would really create supply. Um, it also changed the the composition of who's buying and and, and why who are these homes being developed for? Mm -hmm. Because right now, um, in uh, people who own second and third properties, like investors, own like 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 an average a fifth of all homes in in the country, and in some cases, the, almost all of of new construction condos. Condo developers are building these 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 condos for uh, second and third owners who want to re rent it. They're not building it for families. You know, so so a second or third, you know, someone who has a second or third home, they're just thinking about easy rental. So they're not thinking about like, what does a family need? So they're building these small shoe boxes that appeal to investors instead of building things uh, that, that families would want. So if we had a, a high land tax, I think a lot of people would, would no longer become, uh, be buying um, second or third properties. They'd probably buy stock portfolios instead. So the, the composition of the, who the buyers are would be primarily families. Um, and and so the market would be more consisting of a families buying to own uh, or or large real estate rental corporations who can can better monetize land by building up high rise rentals, which we need more of that too. So it, it would uh, it would change the the way the market works to to favor ownership, uh, as well as incentivize the creation of more more rental uh, in a dense fashion. So think, all those are are good things. Yeah, I think you're absolutely on the mark about more rentals in the market because again um if you go back to home ownership rates by country um canada is still pretty high in in the the list of home ownership rates so the fact that everybody is chasing home ownership again as a goal like in life right um as as a means of wealth creation as a means of what we just talked about um let's just step back a second i'm curious if we use this as a solution just playing devil's advocate does what stops you know the rise in speculation let's say hey you know canada's come up with this great solution or a province in canada's come up with this great solution first what stops the speculation to drive the prices back to or close to what they were before um you know even if we have reduced in the short term uh, in the medium to long term because ultimately the goal is to not end speculation completely but to, to minimize it to the point that it's not um an effective way to make money, right? An effective way for people to to profit off of families who just want to stay in a in a home. Um, so I'm just curious, is this like a long term solution as well? Yeah. So the the effects on um, so the, the reduction in prices would be relatively permanent, mm -hmm. which means in, in say in 50 years, even if the um, the absolute price of, of of homes has returned to the to what it was pre reform, it would still be roughly three quarters less than it would be without such a tax, right? So it'll always be lower than than a, a, than a market would be without 
the shift of tax in this manner. So that is that is permanent because again, if let's say you take a bond, if a bond pays a uh, hundred bucks, but after this you only get you only keep twenty dollars, the bond is permanently going to be worth less. It's mm -hmm. the same thing uh, with this. So that now that doesn't mean that. Um, uh, I mean, prices will still increase slowly over time, though, but that reflects normal supply and demand of people's need, need to live. Now, the speculation I, 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 we are asserting will be dramatically reduced. They won't be eliminated, uh, but it'll be dramatically reduced uh, simply because the, the holding cost of, of, uh, of land will, will be higher. And people who are more amateurs in 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 speculation will not will not want to buy second and third properties unless they're professional property managers and they make money by like by managing and, and maintaining homes a, a, as a business. Like a, a handyman would be a great multi-property owner in that case because they're actually providing a service as a property manager, you know. So um, so the the yield off of buying um, uh, off of these holding homes long term would be significantly reduced. The incentive, for instance, for a developer. To buy land and then hold on it, for, hold it for 20 years, then lobby the government to change the zoning, uh, would be mainly they they would mainly profit by the building part, not the holding. Because the moment that the, the land gets rezoned, the land tax gets increased, and then the, the land is effectively they don't actually reap the benefit of the growth in land value because the land tax is increased too. So they only reap the benefit from building on top of it, which is a, a pro-social useful thing to do. So yeah, I mean, basically, I think speculation will be mostly uh, addressed, uh, because you don't expect to keep appreciating value that you didn't work for. Um, instead, you know, you can work for it, like build and renovate. And and that's not speculation, that's business. That's a good thing. <laughs> agree, agree. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that always flum like, I always got flummoxed by was this the idea that a home was once 100k now 230k now 800k now 1 million it's the same home you know maybe you've applied some renovations to it um and so that's why to consumers and to the average citizen it's so mind-boggling that we've let it get to this point so i'm so happy that you have uh, you know a solution in mind that we, we can have a discussion on um going back to the investor class now let me let me play out a scenario. Let me know if I'm out of my depth when when discussing this. Um, a common misconception or common uh, perspective is that the investor class needs to have a speculative market in order to call it a safe political haven or a safe haven for funds to be backed into. Right? If you look at I'll I'll use the example of Singapore again, or maybe like uh, Hong Kong or Monaco or Luxembourg or you know, places in the UK, Australia, people park their money there. And let's uh, let's be honest, that has been an, a way for governments to say, come and invest in our country um, because you can invest in our uh, real estate market. And not saying openly, obviously, it's, it's done indirectly, um, bypassing certain laws and whatever, but it's a common perspective people have that the investor class is invited via the means to speculation in a market now let's say you know we put this in place are we are we not incentivizing the investor class to invest in canada or are we saying to entrepreneurs you know who are getting in um you know to canada now coming in from the us coming in from europe and other parts of the world hey you know well get like real estate's not not it but think of something else 
Um, yeah, well, let's look at, let me use a metaphor here. Uh, I love the question. Um, you know, bonds are stocks. Mm -hmm. You know, bonds is safe investment. You know, you get a return. Uh, stocks uh, are more risky. You, you might get a higher return, uh, but it goes up and down. And generally, long term goes up. Um, a, a market before and after such a reform of a, of a high land tax shift would be would make homes more like bonds as opposed to stocks, which means that you don't expect them to really appreciate much in value, uh, but but you're expecting a stable return. So I think, um, you know, uh, because everyone needs a place to live, people still pay rent, you know, the property will still have a return. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll just see the, um, the, the investment motivation uh, changing in terms of having a, a small stable return for whether you're a local domestic or a foreign investor. Um, and as opposed to people buying um, with from a casino mindset, ex um, expecting the prices to go up. You know, so yeah, I mean, after the 2008 crisis, the world took note that Canada's uh, pretty stable housing and banking sector, uh, we didn't actually have a crash. So a lot of money started flooding in. Um, although it's arguable that it, it, it's arguable that it didn't maybe didn't wasn't the big impact everyone thought because we all have these foreign buyer taxes now and it hasn't made any difference at all. You know, it's it's really the, the domestic market that's driving up the the, the speculative behavior uh, that's bidding up prices. So. I think we will still be receiving um, investment. It just the motivation will change. It'll be more stable returns, um, that more more rental yield based returns as opposed to um, uh, people expecting huge windfalls. Um, I would argue that that kind of investment motivation is better. We want those kinds of investors, not not the uh, the overall windfall investors. So you know, do we want condo developers building condos for uh, for foreign buyers or for local buyers? Like, like who are we building this for? At the end of the day, the market will just simply adjust. It's not like we don't have enough local demand. It's only increasing. <laughs> um, Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, that's yeah. A very good. It's a very good point. A lot of the builders that I'll use Toronto as an example, right? With middle housing going away, if you look at luxury condos going up, um, you know, back in the day, Concord was just showing a lot of these homes that you know in Hong Kong to say, hey, hey, this is this property that's being built in the middle of Toronto. Of course, it looks lucrative, you know, to a lot of investors overseas uh new thing for toronto back then no longer new now right you're going to see a lot of these condos go up it's not necessarily what uh the local market needs right so that's why where i think that the disconnect is also happening is that builders are building like you said for second and third home uh, buyers uh, but they're also building um insane insanely priced uh commodities that essentially get passed on to the next generation um it, it's it's I think the cycle, the puck has to stop somewhere, right? And I think this is this is that I'd say that uh, I won't want to use the term silver bullet, but I hope it is, um, because ultimately, if this is discussed in the mainstream, this becomes a topic that ultimately, you know, creates that kind of a conversation, that mind shift that we were talking about. Because even let's say me and my wife alone would think of a family, we're going to think of that same Canadian dream or the American dream that everybody's after, right? Um, and which is, am I gonna pay $2 million for that? Or, you know, does it make sense to, for the market to correct? The market has not corrected in 20 plus years. Um, and that's that's also a hopeless sort of um, effort, right? To, to wait for things to correct. But I think a conversation is definitely needed. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a silver bullet. I mean, but uh, I mean, you still need more relaxed zoning. We still need to work on increasing approval process, uh, approval speeds. We need all those things. But I think um, in a land tax scenario, the market will function better. It it, it change it fixes the incentives on the demand and supply and the allocation side of the market. Like on, on the demand side, again, it it, it removes the um, the speculative intent. People are buying primarily for places to live. Uh, it, it changes the composition of who's buying uh, to better reflect people's need to live. On the supply side, it makes it too expensive to hold underutilized land, which which coaxes things coaxes things back into the market. You know, so a skyscraper and a home on the same plot of land in the same area will have the same land tax. So obviously, uh, there should be another skyscraper there uh, where where it's needed. And uh, so so it fixes supply re restraints. Um, I think it, you know, that'll kind of quickly boot out city councilors who are, are not, uh, you know, rezoning friendly. Uh, if if homeowners want to want to maximize their return by uh, by developing the land in the area, um, for instance, recently we in Ontario they they, they said fourplexes are legal everywhere. I mean, why only fourplexes? You know, why not yeah. tenplexes? Why yeah. why not you know sixteenplexes? Um, so if and also addresses allocation. And this is maybe a more testy subject. There's already. Uh, 500,000 empty bedrooms in, in Ontario. That's the equivalent of 25 years worth of construction wow. uh, shown by Canadian Center of Economics Analysis. 25 years worth of construction is already available in, in under in underutilized homes, which is primarily seniors living in, in, in homes that are too big for them. Well, if we had a land tax scenario where they're not, they're not paying income tax on their pensions, instead they have this land tax, which in, in, in our suggestion, um, if you're a senior, you, you can be allowed to defer the tax to sale. Um, so that you can live there longer, but you might think, well, okay, the economics don't really work out for me to live here anymore. Uh, why not? Why not just downsize and go somewhere else where I can like, maximize my financial return instead of uh, live here and then have this um, this deferring um, loan keep adding to my property. So that might free up more of the existing inventory for for families who need it as well. Um, so just everything starts to work better. People can afford to live closer to work. Uh, when, when people are at a time in their life, it's time to downsize. They have an incentive to do so. Uh, so it, it really just um, uh, addresses some of the uh, the, 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 the the things that are holding back the market from working very well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a yeah. that's another one that that's an important part uh, point that you brought up. Uh, thanks for that. Is you know seniors living in those homes, those uh, big homes that are too big for them, right? Like for example. You know, you, a lot of people will look to downsize. Community living is a big part of, you know, that last stage um, of, of many people's lives, right? Because you want to have a sense of belonging. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we'll talk about universal basic income as well, because that covers certain needs. But, you know, belonging is essentially what you're searching for for a long time. And, and when you're at, you know, the late stage of your life, People always say that, you know, uh, belonging in a community or belonging in a communal living setup always helps. We've seen that in Asia, uh, in a lot of markets in Japan and in India. Um, and we've seen that in Europe, uh, in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, you know, you have communal homes. Uh, and not to say that people don't have big cottage homes and things like that there too, right? So people do have, uh, you know, that stage in their life where they'll look for more space. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right that they should be able to downsize and builders should be incentivized to have those high rises or have 16 plexes, 10 plexes, whatever um, makes more sense. And I think one thing that, again, elephant in the room in Canada always ends up being uh, the NIMBYs, right? Like the, that discussion 
of like who the NIMBYs are um, could be anybody. It could be you or me, or it could be the politicians themselves, right? Um, oftentimes, we forget that decreasing value of a home doesn't mean that the zeros in your bank account are going down, like you said, right? So I think that's just a, a what a fragile topic it is that it's not brought up by the two main parties uh, in Canada. Um, or even the NDP, I don't see them bringing that up. And I generally think like it is such a common sense conversation to have at this point because things have really, really gotten out of hand to the point that the home income uh, to debt ratio is the highest in, in um, the G8 or even the G20, I believe, uh, for Canada. So I think, um, you know, this is a genera generational problem that can have, um, if we find solutions with infrastructure, zoning, and other issues um, in hand. But I think those will follow in tow, right, once we figure this part out. Um, let me go into the mm. universal basic income part of things. I think that's very, very fascinating. Uh, I'll go back to Norway again. I was looking at a stat that showed that a lot of people in Norway, like citizens, um, a, already have high home ownership. It's a very high home ownership country. So let's you know, look at that that that's uh, relationship as well. But they have um, sort of universal basic income type programs available. Um, they have a high entrepreneurship rate um, of almost like 50% plus of people under the age of 38 starting new businesses. Um, mm -hmm. And if they fail, they're, you know, still uh, provided monthly incomes by the government. There's programs put in place so that they don't have to worry about, uh, you know, what comes next tomorrow and how to put food on their plate, which is really the cost and the risk of entrepreneurship today, right? In, in North America is, oh, what if I quit my job? Am I not going to be employable in the future? Uh, but if you have an idea, you're, you know, and a good idea that could benefit society, you're really not taking advantage of the fact that you can do something about it uh, just because you're afraid of your earning potential. So UBI, how does that come in? Do you or do you believe it affects entrepreneurialism uh, for young people? Is it mostly meant for young people? Is it meant for all ages? What is your perspective on that? Okay, so first, uh, just to introduce it. Um, uh, you know, basic income is a an income floor that no one falls underneath. Uh, it could be implemented in one of two ways. Uh, what's typically called the universal basic income means everyone gets the same amount. Uh, and what's called a guaranteed basic income means uh, it, it's the amount that's tied to your income level. So people in the lowest incomes get more than, and people in the highest incomes, so it would phase out. Eventually, you, you wouldn't get any. Uh, and people on, on no income would have the max. So like people or students, people who, who aren't working for a time. Um, and, you know, probably right now, a, a decent basic income floor would be uh, like $1,800, $2,000 a month, something like that per individual. Uh, it's meant to be at the at the market basket rate of poverty. Uh, a guaranteed basic income will have a much lower sticker price in terms of the, the cost to the overall taxpayer because you're not paying everyone, you're paying only those who need it most. Um, although uh, although they might be functionally equivalent in terms of the net cost, um, politically speaking, a guaranteed basic income is, is uh, probably an easier sell, which is why it's it's kind of what, what governments end up discussing uh, when it gets really serious. Like in Canada, there are a lot of MPs and, and uh, people in the political class who are for it and they're for a guaranteed basic income. Uh, because it, it's a way to modernize the social safety net um, and to to you know to solve the gaps that the current welfare system doesn't solve uh, and reduce the inefficiencies, reduce the um, the job dis the, the work disincentives that exist in the current system. 
you know, so a lot of people who are for basic income come from a civil service background who see that welfare programs don't work. They actually disincentivize people from working versus basic income. You don't have that disincentive because you can add your work income on top of your basic income uh, or like it phases out slowly. So you, you, the more you work, the more money you make overall, including your basic income. So this is actually seen as a work incentive for those who, who are currently cannot work. Uh, so it's it's uh it, you know it, it's for students it's for entrepreneurs it's anyone in time of transition who needs time off uh, the hamster wheel to work on the next thing um so, you know it helps people who are perpetually uh, poor as well it's really unfortunate that two-thirds of people in poverty are working just crazy what the fuck's wrong with the market so so it is a it is a it is a a complement to uh, the existing people's work income, which we desperately need, because it shouldn't be that people working, uh, you know, are in poverty. Uh, as well, it's it would replace um, uh, m m most social assistance payments in existing welfare system, so people would be getting basic income uh, instead of um, uh, welfare payments, and wouldn't have to be uh, have their time scrutinized and have to, um, you know, go through the bureaucracy that is dehumanizing and wastes a lot of time and keeps them from working. So yes, yeah, so yes, it would be people who cannot work, uh, as well as people who who are in between work and people who are working towards something better in their lives. And uh, I would argue, though, it's it's that it, it would benefit everybody because what we've seen uh, through the experiments in Dauphin, Manitoba, as well as we've seen it even during our little experiment with the CERB, is that incomes go up when people have financial security. Uh, meaning, when you know that you have a guarantee, you can lobby, you can get, you can negotiate a better salary. Uh, you can seek a better job. We saw during the pandemic that people having only like maybe six months of uh, of time to think, uh, you know, many people uh, took an, a course, an online course to improve their skills. People went and got better jobs than they had before because they temporarily had the income security to do that. So in, in, um, in the experiment that happened in Manitoba in the 70s, we saw median wages go up by 6.8%. Now, people at the median wages weren't getting the basic income in Dauphin, Manitoba, but because people at lower incomes were, were able to negotiate better pay, that trickled up throughout the whole system. So everybody benefited. So that's the opportunity that we have. And um, from an entrepreneurial perspective, yes, it would absolutely unleash more entrepreneurship. Um, I know I organized 100 Canadian uh, business owners to sign a petition for basic income uh, in Ontario, and many of these people did that because they personally had something like a basic income that allowed them to, to start their business. Uh, I know one couple that had a combination of through unemployment insurance as well as an entrepreneurship grant they got from the government. They were able to take two years off of work to start a, uh, an e-commerce business, and now they're multi-multi-millionaires. Um, you know, I, I I know other people who say they had help from their families, so they were able to, to, to not work for a year and start a business. Imagine if everybody had that opportunity. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, businesses would be competing better for workers on pay. People could pursue their dreams. And it's not like everyone's going to be an entrepreneur, but everyone would have financial security. And I think that's good. You know, as an employer myself, I want to know people want to work uh, for me, not that they initially have to work for me, but they enjoy working here. And the onus would be on employers to create a good culture, a good work environment, uh, for because we know that you can't screw people because people have options. And ultimately, if we believe in freedom, if we believe in in, in democracy, we, people should always have options. No one should be uh, forced to do something that they don't want to do. Yeah, uh Honestly, like you nailed it on all those points. And I think it's um, a very refreshing take um, on UBI because I think um, when when it has been brought up, um, 
and the Dauphin Manitoba example is great because I think that's very recent, right? I um I think also generally speaking, sorry, you say it was the seventies. That that particular oh, experiment was okay, the seventies. Yeah. Okay, so I'm thinking yeah. of something else. My bad. Um, You're thinking the Ontario one. Yeah, Ontario that's recent. Okay, yeah. um, it does get printed in the media. It does get talked about, but not enough as um. A solution to productivity. I mean, we were just talking about um, the housing market uh, being propped up, lowering productivity levels, lowering you know GDP per capita in, in Canada and things like that. Right? Here's a solution that I think ultimately. I'm, I'll be curious to see if UBI has uh, correlations with um, you know raises in productivity. But if I was to look at the Scandinavian example, it does right because a lot of times. People look at the Scandinavian countries and go, well, they're not productive if they're all giving all their citizens money. Um, also, another elephant in the room for Canada is high immigration rates, right? Um, becomes a challenging topic when um, record immigration is happening. And, you know, I myself am a former immigrant, so I'm, you know, pro-immigration all the time. But, I mean, with the rates that are coming in, people will be concerned, like ordinary citizens will be concerned if, if it's quote unquote a handout, right? Uh, but like you said, if it's for students, people in transition, people who are you know already working, but they don't need to be in poverty, right? Like that again is such a failure of the system that you know someone working hard, somebody working eight hours a day, legit does not need to be in poverty, right? Like that, like they should be rewarded by the system equally enough to say, hey, I have food, I have water, I have a home. Um, and then I can go out and sort of go enjoy my day. And really that's where society benefits the most. Um, you know, if you think about the fact that we can grow the pie, we can grow the economy and not just look at the existing resources and being, you know, uh, vultures about it. Um, I think that vulture like lifestyle, that cronyistic capitalism that often exists south of the border, I think permeates uh, sometimes here. And I think, there's UBI examples in the, even the U.S. that have worked. Um, uh, I forget the, the naming the examples, but they have worked in similar degrees. Um, and I'm just curious now when we apply this, let's say in a larger scale, you know, like a city like Vancouver, a city like Toronto, is there a porous effect? Do people sort of flock here more? Do those same issues come up where inflation drives up prices to a certain degree that the universal basic income is almost redundant. So I'm curious, I mean, I do understand the welfare example you gave. Now from a consumeristic point and where companies come in, does that greed then spill over to say, hey, you know, the consumer has more money. Maybe we can charge more. Um, I mean, that's the, the dynamics around supply and demand of, of goods don't really change you know people they're already high income earners and you know the market is already charging what what it will bear uh, we're talking about people on low income having a little bit more it, it's a more narrow band of buyers that 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 will be impacted here and uh, there's already competition for that band you know we have no frills you have you know dollar stores you have all kinds of of uh, of competition to provide low cost goods i mean if you believe in the free market then you would believe that uh, generally things should be getting cheaper and they overall have been, you know, with the exception of, of all these shocks we've had during the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, from an inflationary perspective, it's not new money. No one's proposing printing money. Uh, well, some are proposing it, but it's not. no one serious is proposing printing money to pay for basic income. So that would not be inflationary uh, from that point of view. Uh, it, it's, a, uh, uh, it's a redistribution 
uh, in terms of a guaranteed basic income so that uh, those with the least can, can live above subsistence levels. Um, and, you know, it, it's not like, uh, you know, we, don't have, we have enough elasticity in the production of majority of goods, you know, perhaps with the exception of housing, that it should not affect uh, consumer prices. There's really no evidence of that. Um, and uh, so that, that's the answer on inflation. Now, on the consumer side, it does have positive um, aspects to the economy. So uh, a research report done by Canadian Center of Economics Analysis showed that the increased spending of that was created by basic income uh, would grow GDP by, by several points. Uh, actually, it would add $87 billion to Canada's GDP, which is equivalent to you know, our tourism and hospitality industry combined, uh, annualized. And uh, it would grow the economy by more than it costs. So, you know, it, it would literally, the economy would be bigger uh, dollar-wise than, uh, than an economy without the, the basic income in terms of its actual cost. But meanwhile, you've achieved a reduction in poverty, improvements in mental health. You've achieved, um, you know, people better able to plan and to innovate and all these other benefits that it would have. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, especially for small businesses, uh, Main Street businesses, uh, having more customers coming by, um, it's it, this is shown. Like in Alaska, they have, they have something like a, a basic income from oil revenues. People get $2,000 a year. Uh, and uh, it's actually a thing. People, uh, businesses are promoting. Uh, you see an increase in ad spending in the month prior to those oil checks coming out to everybody, uh, because everyone knows that this is going to be a big spending spending month as people have more money to spend. <laughs> you know, so it's a uh, yeah. It just kind of adds that kind of resilience in that to the economy. Um, you know, what is an economy anyway? It's people. It's people and businesses. And I would argue that people living below subsistence is just not making the best use of the of the human and, and real resources that we have. Uh, you know, we could be a much bigger economy if everyone can participate in it fully. Totally agreed. Um, there's a very good vid video on YouTube, by the way, called by Kurt Sigart. It's a, it's a channel that educates people on these types of concepts. And it's about an altruistic um, growth. You know, um, effective altruism essentially is a movement that is thinking about how do we, as ordinary citizens, you know, somebody making 30,000 a year to somebody making 300,000 a year, how do they contribute towards effective causes? And, you know, advocacy is a part of it. Um, and I think advocacy becomes a big part of something like UBI. Like if we are talking about advocating something that affects, you know, our backyard, people in our local neighborhood, then, you know, for listeners, I think this is a good point to, you know, be advocates about, you know, it's great to donate to charity, but donations alone are not sustainable, right? And I think it's the same thing with philanthropic donations by billionaires looks good, but we can't have a society built on that, right? So ultimately, you know, donations alone are and one time donations alone aren't what we need. And same with governments, you know, what time handouts like CERB, um, which to the, to this day, I'd say the media is still very bearish on CERB because they continue to blame the current inflation crisis on, on the liquidity we had back two years ago, right? Um, so again, I think a big, big perspective and mind shift is needed on that as well because what we're talking about is, like you said, the people who are lowest rung um, in society, being able to just have ladders to go up, you know, that is that so much to ask because ultimately you know let's say population rates in the future go down globally they are already trending downwards we're not going to have infinite labor and the way we're importing people in canada we're kind of just putting a band-aid solution 
right? Um, and saying, hey, well, these people will work for lower wages. Let's let's see what happens. Eventually, everybody's going to demand that same wage. You know, I don't think this is a, a solution right now that our government is working on that is is working at all. So, I mean, everybody sees absolutely. Through. So I think I think that's a very, very good point that you raised there. Um, one more question I had about UBI, and this is more just to, to do with the, the dynamics of it. Um, now, let's say, you know, Canada as a country adopts it. What does that mean with our bilateral trade agreed uh, relations with a country like the U.S.? We're so pegged, you know, against the U.S. dollar. Our economy is basically pegged against theirs, right, uh, in many ways. Um, just wondering... What kind of effects does that have as a G7 nation and long-term effects? What do you think? I'm just hypothesizing. Yeah, well, uh, I hadn't thought of that specific question before. It's a very interesting question. Um, I think uh, I do think our economy will become more productive. I do think we will be a more attractive country to be in. Um, but, uh, you know, but we also have very tight controls on immigration as it is. And, uh, so I don't think it'll, it'll really change that dynamic much, right? If, if half a million people want to come here now, it's not going to change how people want to come here after basic income because the government still controls that very tightly here. And, um, but I think it would become a more attractive place to, to live and, uh, and probably will end up having, um, better quality labor. I mean, why is Canada letting in so many people now? So we, we want to have, uh, a better labor force that can pay for pensions that can run, run the country as the rest of the world is, is experiencing a decline in labor. You know, we may be a case where a lot of businesses in the future are, are opening up in Canada because this is where the skilled labor is. So I think that the more basic income we have, the more skilled labor we'll have because people can afford to go to university and can afford to retrain. Um, you know, the, the governor of the Bank of Canada, um, former governor of the Bank of Canada, um, uh, Mark uh, Mark Carney uh, in a talk said that we need a way for people to retrain in the midlife. See, 40-year-olds should be able to go back to university because things are changing so fast. Well, we're, there's no way we're doing that without a basic income because no one can afford to take the risk. So if, if we have that in place and we have a, a more educated workforce here, uh, I think that would give us a competitive advantage uh, across the G7, as well as just being a, a nice place to live. Like, who wouldn't you want to live in a place where there's no poverty? A lot of people will feel safer living here. Rich people will feel safer living here, knowing that that they're that poor people aren't actually that poor anymore. And uh, so I think that would give us, um, yeah, would give us a, a leg up in that regard. Um, yeah, and then I guess uh, another thing I like to think about this is unrelated to your question is that I, I'm kind of a futurist. And I think about the real long term. If we think about long term, where automation is really taking out more and more of, of the jobs in this country and all around the world, um, then it, it turns out that those who own assets, those who own resources, who owns, owns the equipment, technology, who own all the land, these, these are the ones who benefit the most and working people lose out. The majority of people who, who, who work do not benefit and participate in growth in the economy. So how do you create a system where growth in the economy benefits everybody? And I think uh, a basic income is, is the first step that will prepare us for a solution in the future where we found a way to more um, uh, collectively re realize ownership on some of these, uh, some of the ways that that value gets produced. Now, I'm not talking about like nationalizing businesses. I'm talking about things like a land tax where the, since land value is collectively created, 
Uh, we share in its value through 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 that being the way that we fund government, through creating sovereign wealth funds like Singapore has and Norway has, uh, like you know that that own uh, shares of of uh, the high tech companies that people can benefit by getting dividends from from these sovereign wealth funds. So I think the idea that people are accustomed to getting uh, an income that's separate from work will be really important in the long term as humanity. Um, progresses to a place where uh, jobs are not paying enough as a means of participating. So we've got to find a way for, you know, know, capitalism works for asset owners. We find a way for all of us to become asset owners so that we can all benefit and that we could actually maintain our middle class and eventually get us to a future where we have a 20 hour work week. Like why not? Right? Like we'll never get to that future as long as like most people can only sustain themselves off of a job. Like never, it just that's just simply not possible. No amount of, of of labor reform or minimum wage growth could ever get us there. We have to find a way to share in the growing value of assets, and, and that's some of the that's one of the theses of Commonwealth, is that we can create Commonwealth for all of us to benefit. So that that is a different take on basic income. Uh, so basic income is seen as anti-poverty is is more of like a reform of the social safety net. But I think it is a stepping stone to something that I, I, I personally yearn for is to see some sort of um, common asset ownership that pays dividends to everybody. So we all are our stakeholders and shareholders in our, in our own economy. I think you're touching on something that's so key and, and so not talked about by economists when we're talking about growth, mm. when we're talking about um, just economic productivity and talking about you know, uh, people as as consumers in general, we forget the negative externalities around us that, you know, affect us to this degree. Like I'll talk about homelessness. I'll talk about like the drug crisis, mental health crisis and things like that. A lot of these, if you just look at them in isolation and you come up and you throw some money at it, you will never solve or get to the root of the problem, right? Um, I don't want to misquote studies but i mean there are studies that show that ubi in some degree if you give income to certain homeless uh populations um a fair amount of them will get out of homelessness right um and it's the Mm -hmm. same thing when we look at the the drug and opioid crisis right now right like it's just there's just this impending fear that i am so below average that i won't succeed or i'm so afraid of failure and every entrepreneurial or successful entrepreneur talks about the failures, right? And they talk about how they were able to succumb failures. And now I think that's really the quality of life element that we really need um, is the ability to have a failure and not be judged for it, the ability to work and fail and maybe do better in life afterwards, you know, and, and not be punished or judged for it. If you're still, you know, working and you're a hardworking individual, you know, you shouldn't be penalized by the system. Ultimately, that's just a benefit to everybody. So I think it's a great, great message to, to take away. I really appreciate your time. Um, mm-hmm. Would leave the floor for you in the last uh, few minutes. If you want to leave a message for the listeners, um, tell what you're working on or, you know, just general advice um, or on advocacy on, and um, how to work towards a greater uh, future. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Well, if you believe in basic income and we have some tools on our website, ubiworks.ca, uh, some petitions, you can take action. Just a few seconds, it'll cause emails to go out to your MPs and senators. Um, there is a bill right now that is uh, you know, still in in, uh, in Parliament uh, for debate about creating a plan, a national plan to study basic income for Canada. Uh, you can have a role in making that happen. 
Um, and if you like what we talked about Commonwealth, then um, yeah, if you know of other places where other housing groups that meet or, or forums, I, I'd like to do this, to talk about this wherever I can, feel free to suggest me or invite me in or join our, our mailing list on commonwealth.ca and we'll be keeping up to date with our, our work. And, uh, but yeah, really appreciate uh, the discussion, Ashish. Um, you were, it seems that we're definitely on the same page about these things and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Likewise, thank you so much, Floyd.